0: Good morning. morning. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant Gideon. And as we get into the deep end of Gideon, just as we are wrapping up, we pray that you would open our eyes uh, to the witness of your scripture, that your Holy Spirit might speak through it, and it might not just be real in our minds, but real and active in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, you get to a point in adulthood where you... um, you know, your whole life you can't wait to grow up, and then you get to a point in your adulthood where you're like, I would kill for nap time. <laughs> yeah? And I'm listening to the kids over there, and I'm thinking, the grass is always greener. And then, <laughs> the grass is always greener, because it would be fun just to go in there and, and sing. Uh, so let's stand and sing. Just kidding. Uh, um, oh. uh, today is our last day in uh, looking at Gideon's life, and we're getting into uh, the deep end and sort of... Um, The thing that nobody uh, remembers about Gideon, uh, thankfully, um, but uh, still nonetheless is how Gideon ended his life and lived out his final days, which is nothing uh, to write home about, and yet judges recorded it, and so it was meant for us uh, to know And uh, this morning we're going to see the ultimate failure of Gideon and his attempts to recover his mistake, which we talked a little bit about last week, but this week the scripture does something very funny and it gives us a little bit of information that we didn't know uh, that was really fueling Gideon all along and they wait until now in a very dramatic and awful moment um, here uh, in chapter 8 of Judges. And what we've learned is, if you remember from last week, if you were here, if you weren't, that's okay. Um, Gideon has, has crossed the Jordan and is chasing after the two kings of Midian, <coughs> excuse me, which, which escaped from that great battle where, you know, remember the, the dinner roll rolling into the camp, and Gideon and his 300 men surround the camp, and it looks like there are more than there really are, and they pull off this huge dramatic victory. But they have run across uh, a few, a few, have run across, well, a few, you know, keeping it in perspective compared to what they just had done, uh, run across the River Jordan, and Gideon chases after them, and along the way gets very mad at two different towns, uh, because they won't supply him any supplies, and so he says, okay, when I catch these guys, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to deal with you, and of course he does that, and he deals with them by killing, basically, these two, Killing off these two villages uh, of his own countrymen, of his own countrymen, uh, for simply disrespecting him. So things aren't looking good for Gideon at this point. And just when you think that they uh, couldn't get any worse, they get much, much worse. Because Gideon has carried off these two kings, uh, Ziba and Zalmunna, um, and has brought them back into Israel. And we pick up in chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. Um, well, let's start at 18. So we, he just broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Ding! Next chapter, or next story. Then he said to Zeba and Zomuna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? What? Right, this is out of left field. We haven't heard this before. What about Tabor? What happened? We don't know. But this is all of a sudden information that we wish that we had known before he crossed the Jordan, but it turns out this is why he crossed the Jordan chasing after the two kings. The two kings answered him, As you are, so were they. Every one of them set, resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So you just pick up on what's happened, why he was chasing after them? They killed his brothers. They killed all of his brothers because they just sort of thought, that guy looks like Gideon, you know, but we've never, you know, back then they couldn't get on Facebook and look and see what Gideon looked like. And, you know, they, you couldn't Google stalk somebody like we do now, um, but they looked, they said, well, you know, these guys fit the description of Gideon, so they killed him, and that's what's fueling his rage against them, and then these two towns of Succoth and Penuel didn't help very much in, in getting his ire up, and Gideon has chased them back, and he's brought them back, and this is where it gets very dark and scary. This is not, this is not, these are not the stories that come up at VBS when you talk about Gideon. And Gideon said, they were my brothers, if you would save them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword for he was afraid because he was still a young man. So you have a huge group of people watching these two kings who know that they're going to be executed. There's no way out of this situation. Uh, so they're ready for it and they, you know, what sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander and they know that it's coming and they know that that's what happens when you go off to war uh, except uh, what is happening now is Gideon is telling his firstborn son who is a very young man um, probably... You know, 11, uh, 12 years old, and uh, Gideon says, go kill these two adult men. And uh, the little, I mean, so 11, 12, that's still so a little boy. He's, he's afraid, um, and rightfully so. Um, so there are two things going on. Uh, one thing is uh, it would be humiliating and awful for the kings for this to happen. Did you bring enough for everybody, Lord? <laughs> uh it would be humiliating and awful for the two it would be humiliating i'm glad we have a little bit of comic relief. that was actually helpful because this is about to get awful <laughs> it would be humiliating and awful uh for the two kings on a whole bunch of levels first of all like if you're a king and you're going off to war right it's sort of like if you're your favorite team like let's say that you root for uva basketball like if you're going to lose to somebody you don't want to lose to well I won't mention any names uh but you know you want to lose to somebody you know what I'm talking, you're the enemy, I don't want to talk to you, yeah. Uh, we have a Virginia Tech grad in our midst. But anyway, uh, you don't want to lose uh, to some no-name. You know, if you're Duke, you don't want to lose to Norfolk State, right? You, that, that's, that's awful. You know, you'd feel a little bit better about losing to somebody else, right? Uh, and so when it comes to an execution, what you, who you want to be executed by is sort of the premier warrior man in the tribe, that's who should be doing the execution. Gideon should be the one actually throwing the blow. But it's not only humiliating on that level, uh, give an 11 or 12 year old a large sword uh, to kill an adult man, that's not gonna go well. It's gonna be uh, gruesome, uh, and it's not going to be sort of the, the one fail swoop uh, and so th- this is uh, so bad that the kings say, uh, the two kings say, "Rise yourself, Gideon, and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength." Right? They're saying, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa!" You know, why don't you know? It's a very strange thing. Like, look, we know we're going to die, but if we're going to die, we want you to kill us, not uh, your little son. So it's humiliating for the two kings. Uh, but think about how this little boy feels. Uh, He's standing uh, before everybody. His father has just won all these amazing victories and battles by the hand of the Lord. And yet here is this little boy uh, who has been put in a situation uh, that is lose-lose. The little boy um, uh, doesn't want to do it, and yet he knows he has to do it. So this is not, um, you know, he's not being put into place to succeed. He's been put in a situation where he can only uh, lose. And that, I think, is more of a humiliating point and shows you how far Gideon uh, has fallen um, in that he's even dragging his son down and basically making his son do something that um, you hope no person would have to do. It's just awful. And that as an 11, 12-year-old boy, this would be the defining moment of his life and would set him on a course... um, until the day he died. And, um, you know, it is true that as a father and as a husband, Gideon, you know, it's Gideon's behavior and Gideon's actions and, and Gideon's mindset and all that Gideon is doing is going to affect his family whether they like it or not. Right? You can't just say, well, dad's kind of up to this. He's gone and, uh, and crushed the Tower of Penuel, but hey, hey, that's not me. Right? It, that's, that's an impossibility. There's a trickle-down effect that happens in every family and uh, what we're seeing right now is sort of Cat Stevens song, Cat in the Cradle um, playing out in, in real life uh, where Gideon is basically taking his son and setting him on the same path that he's on at an earlier age. And and Gideon is not doing this like, Gideon is not doing this strategically. He's operating at a pure rage and emotion, and yet uh, there still is um, a degree of um, strategy to it, whether he knows it or not, and he's bringing his son down and his family down with him. And um, for those of you that have children, you know that they're like little sponges. They're like little sponges, and not just with the words that you say. When they start echoing, and man, they're really rocking it out this morning. And is that three-year-olds? I'm going to talk to Robbie and Anna Colvin after this, yeah. But um, they're little sponges, and you know, even though uh, people, you know, uh, parents will say, "I don't feel like I have that much influence over their children." If you uh, look at the surveys that have done of, of uh, children and adolescents and teenagers. Um, they will, if, And they're asked, what is the number one, um, what is the most significant um, guide in your life or source of guidance in your life, even though you may not believe it, it's their parents. They always say parents, in spite of the fact that they act like they ignore you, that, that it may seem like their friends have more influence over them, but the greatest influence in the life of a child is always their parents. And so what Gideon is learning the hard lesson of, and what his son is realizing, is that Situations like a father—if um, you're called to be a father, right? You're a dad. There's no way to get around that. The answer is: is are you going to be a faithful dad or an unfaithful dad? Right? You can't undo your fathership. You, you have to kind of—you you live into it. Um, but how do you live into it? And Gideon, who was at this point probably the most famous person in in that area of the world, and everybody trembles and fears him uh, because he's now. Uh, totally decimated the Midianite army as well as sacked these two towns of his own countrymen and is now uh, about to behead uh, these two kings. Um, Now people fear Gideon for all the wrong reasons uh, and, and that is what his son is saying. And his son is saying, if I'm to be a man, this is the man that I'm supposed to be. But still there's a part of the son in this story where he realized something about this isn't right. This isn't right and I am really afraid. And of all times when you're most afraid When you're most afraid, who do you want? Normally it's mama, but mom's not there. So if mom's not there, who do you want? But it's dad that's actually perpetrating this. So the very person that he needs to turn to for help, when it says right here that he's the most afraid he's ever been in his life, which is the word that she used, the very person that he needs to turn to is the one that is actually making him more afraid than he's ever been in his life. And this is not a productive fear. It's not like you've got your child up on the high dive saying you can do it. Um, And then they do it and there's great celebration. This is just cold-blooded, awful, butcherous murder is what this is. But um, Gideon is convinced. um, Gideon is convinced uh, by uh, these two kings and we read that it says, And Gideon rose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. So what we find then is that this, again, is not simply an issue of military justice or, hey, this just happens when war happens. But he not only um, executed them, but then what did he do? He took their things. He robbed them. Um, And so Gideon is really just this terrible marauder at best. Um, And at this point, of course, everybody fears him. And a guy named Michael Wilcock writes this, Gideon has become, even on the testimony of his enemies, a man of majesty and strength. But there is something less than admirable at the heart of him for all the development of his great abilities. Beware the gifts of the Spirit without the fruit of the Spirit. Now, what Wilcock is saying about that is the gifts of the Spirit... abilities of doing and Gideon has that Gideon has amazing abilities (coughs) and in spite of the fact I mean the Lord is giving him these victories but it's clear that Gideon does have abilities that have been given to him by God in order to uh, pull off what is happening Uh, not just uh, he's incredibly intelligent um, through these strategies Uh, he's a leader um, he has a lot of drive, he has a lot of ambition, uh, and he is attractive. I mean people begin to really start to, to come to him as if he 's a magnet, and yet uh, he lacks the fruit of the spirit, which, is, which are the character qualities of being. so he has all the abilities he has of doing, but he lacks the qualities of being right in the Bible we, we read about fruits of the spirit or, or uh, gifts of the spirit which are all about doing, and then we read about Gifts of the Spirit like peace, patience, kindness, those types of things, which are about being. Those are things that you're being. This is really funny. (coughs) So, you know, this morning... Is it only bothering me? Yeah. Of course it is. Of course it is. I'm going to tear down your towers and thrash you. Yeah. and so what Gideon lacks, what you see, is he lacks a fruit of the Spirit. He doesn't exhibit any of the Holy Spirit working out in his life as a sense of being. All you see Gideon doing is what? Doing. He's just constantly doing. And it's through his doing that he thinks he's fulfilling what the Lord is requiring of him. When what God is ultimately concerned about is not just sort of your head in doing what you think you ought to do, but your heart in seeing the Holy Spirit work through that and actually you begin to manifest the fruit of the Spirit in your life. But a lot of people get that confused, and they think that the fruit of the Spirit, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, love. you don't have to do that lesson. Oh, okay, that might be it too. That might help. Thank you. Um, a lot of people think, you know, I really need to work on patience. I really need to work on peace. Um, and, um, and I understand where they're coming from, but what we see in the Scriptures, if you look when Paul writes about fruits of the Spirit, is that those things... The, you know, we are sort of the tree and the word, the language that Paul uses is to bear fruit. Are you laughing at me because, you know, this is driving me nuts? <laughs> Lauren can always tell by the look of my face when something is driving me crazy. I start to grip things, you know, and I sort of run my fingers through my hair. Um, thank you, Leslie. Was it closed all the way? Just lie to me. Thank you. Oh, it makes me, Psychologically, it makes me feel better you know that. You know, we all say things like we need to work on this, we need to work on that, and um, and I understand where you're coming from. But when the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit, what they're talking about, what he, what Paul's talking about, and the language he uses is to bear fruit, not to produce fruit. Which means what the Holy Spirit is the sap in your life that produces the fruit. You simply bear it. The moment you think that you're the sap, you're toast. Right? You're do- because you're not actually going to be able to produce that fruit on your own. If you are, it's actually a false fruit. It's a false fruit, because if you're anything like me, you'll say, you know, I just need to be more patient, and that'll go well for a couple of days, and all of a sudden you're like, I'm sick of this patience farming business. and, and you, Or you just lose it. Like, all of a sudden, you're like, ah! Uh, you, you, you blow up, uh, because you realize that what patience you have is really just a conscientious effort to mask over your impatience. Right? So I mean to Gideon's credit, he doesn't even try to do that. He's just a nut. And uh, but he thinks that, you know, if I'm doing, if I'm doing I'm just exercising the abilities that God has given me, then then that's faithful enough. Then that's faithful enough. But what he's not exhibiting is any fruit of the Spirit in his character of being, why? Because what we find with Gideon is that there is a huge disconnect between his heart and his mind. Gideon's the guy that can get all the Sunday school questions right. He'll tell you, you know, if, if, if you ask him, give me the ABCs of salvation, he's going to be able to do it. He is um, outwardly, looks like this manly man of God and a hero. But what we find inwardly is that there's a disconnect between his outward life and in his inward life and if there is a disconnect ultimately it's going to show in your outward life. But the funny thing about that is is that simply acknowledging that disconnect is normally proof enough that that there isn't a disconnect. People who suffer from this where in their head they can sort of wrap their mind around it and say okay I get it. I get the message that Jesus is trying to uh, convey to me Um, but they don't necessarily get it in their hearts. It hasn't made... You know, who was it that said the longest distance in the world is between the heart and the mind? Somebody very smart and sweet said that. But um, they're right. And that's what Gideon is dealing with. That he thinks that in order to be faithful to God, I need to be doing. And, um, and we run into that in the New Testament. Remember Mary and Martha when Jesus comes to their house in Bethany... And Mary sits at his feet, and Martha's off in the kitchen doing all of these things, and she comes to him and says, Jesus, tell my sister Mary to come help me, uh, because I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and she's not. And Jesus says, actually, Mary is the one who's doing what she's supposed to be doing, because she understands, because the head knowledge has transferred to heart knowledge, and that is manifesting itself by being able to sit at my feet. And I don't know if you've ever been... This is, and this would be tough for Mary to do. Don't think Mary in this story is being lazy because if you've ever been someplace and there's a flurry of activity going on around, or if you're married... Oh, see, it's really not that bad. I was okay with that one being... Written. Okay. If you've ever uh, had a dinner party at your house or something and you're married... And uh, just try sitting down and reading your Bible while your spouse is trying to get everything ready, <laughs> right? How's that? Gonna, it's going to go over like a lead balloon. It's not going to work. And um, and I'm not recommending that. But um, but when somebody else is doing an activity that technically you're responsible for as well and you should be pulling your own weight. It's really hard for us as human beings to sit back and do that. And so the fact that Mary is able to do that with a clear conscience means that she's made the connection and she's no longer under the law of feeling like she needs to be doing, 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 but she realizes that being in a relationship with Jesus Christ is the important thing and it's simply about being. People who are into doing are always looking for the next thing that they have to do. Right? Okay, I've done this. I've gotten this one under control. What do I need to do next, Jesus? Right? I, I was I was chairman of this campaign drive. I I, vol- I was a Sunday school teacher. Uh, what do I need to do next? And of course, Jesus answer is always be in relationship with me. You know, be in relationship. Don't you know? Don't feel the pressure of having to go now. If you're called to do that, if God has called you to do that, that's great. But that is not the primary. And a lot of people love. You know, I fall into this trap, too. I'm going to tell you the story, but you're going to hear it in a sermon one day because it's a really great story. Um, I often think Christianity is about doing, and the way that I see it manifest itself in my life, and it did for a while, was the collection plate. And um, in the world that we live in, a lot of people do direct deposit to their churches. And um, But every time the plate would go by, this is before I was ordained, I would still feel like I needed to put Something in the plate, right? Why? Because what would people think if it went by Andrew and he didn't put anything in the plate? They must think, hmm, he's not giving. But of course, I was. So even if it was just a dollar or something, I would put it in the plate. And for some reason, I was sitting in the pew with Lauren and Buford, and. And uh, everybody else was doing their thing up there, but I was in the congregation that Sunday. And the plate came around, and I reached in my pocket, and I didn't have any cash. So what I did was I took an offering envelope, and it was totally empty, but I just sealed it. And when it went by, I just (laughs) put it in as it went by. Uh, Because why? You know, I thought, you know, if if people want to think of me as a good... But the best I ever saw was a lady. I was up front, and I was sitting there, and uh, they were taking up the offering, and the choir was singing. And I was just watching the congregation... And I noticed there was a little bit of a commotion in the congregation, so I watched, and you know, the usher was trying to get the plate moved, but it wouldn't, and there was a lady making change uh, in the plate. And I said, there is a lady who is under grace and not under the law, right? There's a lady who, who is able to give the widow's might or whatever it is she's giving and feel comfortable and secure in that, knowing this is what the Lord has called me to give, no more, no less. And so I don't feel bad making change in, in the plate. And I thought... Gosh, you know, I wasn't offended by that in the least. I was envious. Um, now, of course, you know, I would probably die if, if my children or, or anybody ever did that uh, to me. But you see what I'm saying? Gideon's one of those guys who is going to put the empty offering envelope in the plate just to make you think that he's being the good Christian that he's supposed to be. And um, and so Gideon is not too far off uh, from us. But just uh, when you don't think it could get any worse, it does. And Gideon is offered the kingship of Israel. Okay, here's where Sunday school Gideon comes in. Gideon is offered the kingship of Israel. And we look in verse 22 where it says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Okay. Right answer, right? Because what the Israelites want is they want a king who is going to give them... The purpose of having a king in the ancient world is stability, right? Especially in Israel, because up till now, who ruled Israel? Judges, right? (coughs) And how were judges made? God called them. Israel hated that. Why? If you have a king... The king has a son, and when the king dies, you have another king. And when he dies and he has a son, you have another king. And so there's stability. You don't have to wait for God anymore to raise up a leader. You have that. You don't have to worry about that awful in-between time of what's going to happen next. And what the people wanted was a king rather than to be ruled directly by God. They didn't want to wait any longer for God's choice of a savior They didn't want to be dependent anymore on God's grace and salvation. They wanted a king. And Gideon rightly says, no, you have no king but the Lord himself. And it's upon him that we need to rely on to raise up another leader. Right, that's a a good answer. But then look what he says a verse later. Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. Okay, I'll stop right there. So what Gideon says is, and then he makes an ephod which I'm going to get to in a minute. So what Gideon says is, you only have one king but God, but I'll tell you what, I don't want the title, but give me the authority and the money. That's what he wants. He says, please, please, don't call me king, but treat me like one. So what Gideon has done is he's taken everybody's money, basically, the spoils of this war. And if you remember, these are hundreds and thousands of people, the Midianites and the Amalekites who were in the valley, and they've said, yeah, Okay, here you can have it. Why? Because they know what's going on. If we give him this money, then he will give us the security that we need. And Gideon obviously has a good track record, and uh, let's re-elect him. And so what's happened is he's taken on all the authority and wealth of a king without the title. And again, just when things couldn't get any worse, Gideon makes an ephod. Now... If you know your uh, Old Testament in Exodus 28, uh, there was this funny thing called an ephod, and it had the urim and the thummon in it and they were two stones that you could receive yes or no answers out of. And a lot of uh, biblical scholars think that they were sort of, you'd you'd spin them and they'd kind of be on a reel, you'd flip them and they have like a heads and a tails and if like two heads came up, the answer was yes. And if uh, two tails came up, the answer was no. If you got a heads and a tails, it was ask again. Um, you know, it was like a magic eight ball, is what it was. And you only used it, it, I don't know when they ever used it, but presumably they only used it in times when things were really dire and they needed an answer. Right, and in the New Testament we have examples of, of them casting lots for a new disciple. And so they didn't think that this was a game of chance. They really thought God was going to operate through the ephod. Now, I say that an ephod existed in Exodus 28, which means what? There is an ephod, but... Gideon decides to make another, and not just that, he sets up a tabernacle in Shiloh, which means you have two rival tabernacles and two rival ephods in the land of Israel. And um, the ephod uh, makes people come, now, because now that Gideon has done this, what he's consolidated is not just wealth and authority, but he's taken it a step further and has consolidated spiritual authority. Now that he has an ephod, people will come to Gideon for spiritual guidance and no longer to God in the rightful tabernacle. And so Gideon was using God now to consolidate his power instead of serving God uh, as he ought to. And again, Gideon's problem is a disconnect between his heart and his head. Now, a thing that I think is curious is that this is not the only time the biblical character has ever done this. Um, it happens to all of us, but uh, it even happens to the best of us. Uh, as I've been talking about someone who gets all the Sunday school answers right, or they, they pass all the quizzes, but they fail the test. Who, does that, who else does that sound like in the New Testament? Always ready with the right answer, very impetuous. Impetuous? Peter, right? Peter. And that happens to Peter, and that's why St. Paul takes him to task in Galatians. And when he says this, Paul says this to Peter, But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now what Paul is saying is, You confess at your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, but the moment that you get around uh, the Jews who still live under all the old covenants, so remember the big controversy at the time with circumcision and all that, all of a sudden you forget about the grace of God and you just start living like they live. Even though intellectually you know what the deal is, you can't help but fall back into the old pattern of life. And that's exactly what Gideon is dealing with here. That... Um, that this disconnect that exists between his heart uh, and his mind uh, is not being bridged. In fact, he's only exacerbating it by what? Consolidating power. He's putting everything on his shoulders and not looking. Uh, he's basically, you know, in his mind, he's basically worked God out of a job. Right? Because now he is the king, except not in title. Uh, he controls the spiritual, war, spiritual welfare of the state, <coughs> and he calls the shots. He's got it all. But he dies a very miserable man. And, um, you know, Midian was subdued. They raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Why? Fear. right? He consolidated power. But no human agency can keep peace and consolidate power forever and ever. How long... I I was reading something recently about... um, geopolitics like all of you do uh, you know, when you have free time and I was just reading about the Ottoman Empire that it existed on the face of the earth for 1400 years. For 1400 and you know that the Ottoman Empire was thinking we're just going to go on forever. We will never ever crash and burn. If you had told the Roman if you, went, if you had went, gone into Pontius Pilate or one of the Caesars and said one day the Roman Empire will be no more they would say what you talk about Willis? You know they that's that's craziness. That's that's not true. And yet, here in forty years in the land of good and plenty, Gideon ruled over them. And of course, even though um, he said he wasn't going to be a king, who wants to uh, rise up and who will take his place? His son Abimelech. Who does that by doing what? He kills all of his siblings. And it's a terrible, terrible. You can read all about it in Judges nine. Um, and the greatest failure in Abimelech is what? That God didn't call him. God didn't call him. But it's very clear that Abimelech is whose son, Gideon. He is following in the very footsteps of his father. Now, in spite of all of that, uh, there is a silver lining, Kanda. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, we know this is like a great hall of fame of, of people of faith. And uh, we look in Hebrews... And it starts out with, you know, it says, you know, Abraham, Moses, uh, Rahab, who um, was the prostitute in Jericho that helped uh, Joshua's armies destroy the city of Jericho. Um, And then uh, the author of Hebrews says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, that's not the president, that's the judge, Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, so all of a sudden, Gideon is right out of the gate lumped in with the likes of David and Samuel and is considered a hero of the faith. Why? It's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> it's a good question. Well, I think, I think some things are unsaid. Um, and if you look at the scope Of Gideon's life. I think unfortunately people do, um, you know, you only tend to look at segments of people's lives and normally whatever is worst or whatever comes at the end. That's the part of people's lives that we tend to concentrate on. And I think that what I see in Gideon is is me at times. I just don't have the same opportunities that Gideon has to sin. Um, But um, who among us when you know, if you were offered kingship and all the money in the world, uh, even though you knew it was wrong, I mean, who wouldn't want to nuance it a little bit? There's no king but Jesus, but I will gladly take the nice stipend and, um, and you know, uh, uh, I'll rule over you. And, uh, and you know what, maybe there was something, you know, Gideon thinking... Um, You know, maybe there's something spiritually beneficial about making an ephod. Maybe this is is something that would be good for the people of Israel so they don't have to travel near and far. They can just kind of, you know, we'll franchise it right here. But what we see in Gideon is like the rest of us is that Gideon has taken very good things and he has made them snares in his life. An ephod's not a bad thing. Uh, ruling over the people of Israel is not a bad thing. Winning great victories is not a bad thing. Uh, wanting to see your son succeed is not a bad thing. And yet uh, those good things uh, can become very bad when you make them ephods, idols, uh, whatever it is in life. And that's what happened with Gideon as he lost sight. I don't know uh, how he lived out the remaining 40 years of his life um, uh, the author of the Hebrews uh, says that he was a, a great man of God, and it may be that you know he probably did finally get it. Uh, and um, and there's no doubt though that God used Gideon in a mighty way, uh, in spite of Gideon's greatest flaws, which we all have, right? which we all have. And there is something good about Gideon, I think, that uh, a lot of us, I think I've said this before, that false modesty is the other side of the same coin as pride. And uh, oftentimes we as Christians, uh, we may be called to do something, but we often will shrink back from it thinking, no, 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 I I can't do that, I I won't do that. Uh, But uh, God still uses us, and God still calls us and wants to use us in those ways. And so there's no reason why any of us uh, can't be a Gideon in the good sense. Um, But even once uh, becoming a Gideon, those struggles that we dealt with before um, are the same... I'm just noticing... Laura, did you take that coat from that machine over there? No. Okay, just wanted to share. Okay, all right, that's good. Just want to make sure. All right. I just saw there's a whole cooler of Cokes over there, and I thought, huh, well, there you go. All right, yeah, so like Gideon, don't see the Cokes. Uh, but, sorry about that. Um, Gideon, um, that God can still use you in spite of, of, of ourselves, and I think that that's important to learn, that when God calls you to something, whether that be a father, whether that be a mother, whether that be a spouse, that you're bringing all of your flaws to the table. If you bring anything to the table, it's a lot of mess. Right. The moment that we start thinking, these are all the wonderful things that I bring to the table, here they are. Um, if you look closely at them, uh, they all turn out to kind of be ephods. Uh, and, and what I found in life are the things that I think that I'm actually good at and the things that I'm really good at are two different things. Right? When you go into a job interview and people ask you, well, what do you think your strengths are? Well, what you normally tell them is what you like to do. Right? The dean here uh, was famous and is famous for saying, I've never met a seminarian who didn't think that their gift was preaching. And I've yet to meet one whose gift is. Um, and and, and that's, that's typically true. Uh, but what I hope, again, that we see in Gideon is someone who is incredibly flawed, uh, who, is in, who is human uh, like the rest of us, uh, but that we would look at Gideon and say, you know what, there are probably ephods in my life. Uh, there are probably things that I think are good in my life, but they're really just a rationalization for doing something that maybe I shouldn't do. Uh, is this my agenda or is this God's agenda? And, uh, and how I know that is I need to make sure that it, this is not just a head knowledge, uh, but this is a heart knowledge. And what I need is for the Holy Spirit to intervene in my life and to speak to me and for me to be sensitive to him and to listen to what he is saying. Um, because if not for the grace of God, I'm going to be just like Gideon. I'm going to be just like all of these other guys who I think I'm doing the right thing and I'm well-meaning, but it turns out um, I may be living for the last 40 of years of my life uh, hoping and praying that my sons don't follow in my footsteps only to realize that they will. That they will. Um, but uh, God's grace is greater than all of those things and so I hope that we'll put our trust in him uh, and look to Gideon uh, even in the midst of all the bad and scariness uh, but actually look to him and see him as a witness uh, that God is able to take that which is weak in the world uh, to shame the strong uh, and take that which is foolish in the world uh, to shame the wise. Any questions as we wrap up? I'm in the newcomer's class next week. Don't come. So. That happened once. Somebody came. I think Frank came, and uh, Frank Times came, and uh, he was yelled at for being there. Because you're not a newcomer. Yes, Lauren? Um, I still don't kind of sure know how to go from doing to being. You
1: know, There's no kind of good how to, go
0: from doing to Right. How do you go from doing to being? Well, I think it just comes naturally. I mean, you know, Jesus says the left hand ought not to know what the right hand is, is, is doing. But I think, I think that you can, tell, I think you can tell that you're getting caught up in the doing if you feel like you have to keep up, if you feel like you have to put money in the plate, if you feel like you have to go do this. The moment that you feel like you're obligated to do something, you know that you're stuck in doing. The moment that you have total freedom to say, you know what, I just don't feel called to this, and I'm not going to feel guilty about saying no, I think that's an indication of being. Now, I'm using that as an example, but there, there are tons of other things uh, about it. And, um, but I think that that... But there's no... I mean, if you try to make it into a recipe of how to go from doing to being, we well, have made the being doing. Right. So there's not, I mean, what it takes is an intervention from God uh, to do that. But what do, God does is he confirms it in your heart. And 1 John says this, and I think I've mentioned it before. 1 John says, when you're a Christian, your heart ought to be overwhelmed by all the responsibilities in the world. Like when you see homeless people, your heart ought to be overwhelmed for them. When you see hungry people, you ought to want to feed them. And you ought to feel totally overwhelmed by the fact that, how am I going to clothe all these people? How am I going to feed all these people? How am I going to care for all these people? But thankfully, in God's word, in 1 John, he says, but know this, God is bigger than your heart. God's bigger than your heart. And so just when you feel totally overwhelmed by the task at hand, know that God is bigger than even this task and you just have to put it in his hands. You have to rely on him and not think, if I don't do this, it's not going to get done. Like don't, I mean, you're not really doing God a favor. You know, I, these people that say things like, you know, I've committed to doing a quiet time every morning at five in the morning. And, um, and I did that once. And I had a friend, and some, a friend of mine, I was decided to be honest with him, I said, you know, I haven't been waking up. And they said, you know, Jesus has been waking up and he's been sitting there waiting for you every morning. And I thought, what an idiot and a jerk. Um, and the fact of the matter is, Jesus isn't... Certain, and then when the next time Jesus sees you, he says, I've been waiting. The coffee's cold. You know, where have you been? Jesus doesn't operate that way because what he wants is a relationship. He doesn't want something that's... He doesn't want obligation. If you're married, you see this. You know when your spouse is doing something out of obligation or out of pure love. Like if I get into a fight with my wife, Lauren, just for an instance, and I come home with flowers, how is she going to receive that? You think that's going to work, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. Right. You got a lot more to do. So, just for instance. Uh, but let's just say there is no fight. Things are just kind of normal, whatever. And I come home. I just see flowers and I bring them home. And you know, they're like, "What's this for?" Well, just because I love you. I saw them and I thought of you. All of a sudden, it's like, "Oh, you're wonderful." You know. I, I, and I didn't buy them to get. You see what I'm saying? There's a total difference between doing. I've done the same act, but one has been rooted in love, and the other one has been rooted in obligation. Okay. Good question. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, for your servant Gideon. And Lord, as we read Hebrews 11, we thank you that as Gideon is counted amongst that hall of fame of faith, uh, that we too can be counted amongst them. Uh, That although flawed and struggling, um, uh, you are there. And so, Lord, we pray that we would not be under obligation, but that we would be under grace, that we would know you personally, be in relationship with you, and all that we do would be a result of your work in our life and your calling on our lives, and not out of what we think we ought to be doing, uh, but, Lord, what we ought to be in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a quick follow-up on... um, the question about uh, how did Gideon end up in Hebrews 11 after doing the things that he did uh, back in Judges 8, which we looked at this morning, um, the answer is God's grace. Um, that is how it is. Not only is God bigger than our hearts, he is bigger than our sins. And um, we have to trust that Gideon believed and it was reckoned to him uh, uh, as righteousness. And so um, that is is how um it happens. And, you know, there always seems to be a disconnect uh, between those who are ransomed uh, from death and given life and those who don't. And so you just have to be very careful about being fruit inspectors uh, as we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, that God knows our hearts and um, that He has the final word in all things. Praise His name.